Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today we have a question and answer episode. So I recently put a line out for questions on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and thank you for those who put in questions. I'm excited to get to them today. Before we get started with the show, we have our sponsors, Lost Empire Herbs. For 15% off your Lost Empire Herbs order, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly or use the promo code justfly. Lost Empire Herbs is my go-to supplement company. As much as I talk about the natural governing laws of training, I do enjoy supplementation that has as much of that natural vibe as possible, meaning it came straight from the earth to the packaging to my mailbox. And I absolutely love what Lost Empire Herbs is doing. I got started with them through Logan Christopher, their CEO, who is, amongst other things, an amateur strongman, a sports mental training expert, athletic training, uh, mental training expert, and then also an herbalist. And in using them, I've just been totally blown away. You have things like Shiliagit, which is uh, not just the Lost Empire Herbs thing. A lot of strength coaches are really recommending that. You have my favorite, the Phoenix Formula, and so much more. So you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly for 15% off your order. Go check them out. Next is simplyfaster.com. They are your go-to sports data training and technology store. If you want to time sprints, measure jumps, get bar speeds, get VO2 maxes, and anything that has to do with tracking athlete data, as well as check out some high-tech training tools such as blood flow restriction training or the K-Box, head to simplyfaster.com. They're an amazing store with amazing customer service. Their blog is second to none, and I'm really happy that they are a sponsor of this show. So be sure to support them as they've been with us since the beginning. Absolutely can't thank them enough. All right, last thing before we get started with the questions, just wanted to let you know if you're near the Cincinnati area, Saturday, December 10th, I am running a one-day applied speed and power workshop. You can sign up for that at justflysports.com or head to my Instagram and the link tree. You can click on it there. I hope to see you there. So much of what I talk about on this show, you can get the in-person applied experience. There's nothing like, yes, learning about this, but then going through it, embodying it, feeling the concepts in your own body. And that's what it's all about in so many ways when it comes to learning. So I hope you can join me on December 10th for the Applied Speed and Power Workshop. All that being said, let's get to the questions for the show today. Thank you again for everybody who put them in and a little bit of a diverse question set, of course, with the theme of speed, power type development, but always good to explore the corners of these things. So let's get to the first question. We have Jump High Sean. He asks, I can squat two and a half times body weight, which very impressive squat, by the way. Could I only do jumping and sprinting for vertical jump training? So with this level of a bodyweight squat, could I only revert to jumping and sprinting with no lifting for vertical jump training? And just a couple quick clarifiers here. With vertical jump training, to me, that's more, uh, especially in light of, uh, I have a a very large bodyweight squat. I'm assuming that's more like a, a basketball dunk jumping off of two legs type vertical jump training, maybe some standing jumps here and there but something that is more the, or you could say a volleyball jump. So something that's off two legs. That would be maybe opposed to a track and field high jump. So I'm running very fast and jumping off one leg. Those are two very different strength profiles. Someone who is an elite, uh, let's just say a dunk athlete jumping off two legs, they're usually going to have a stronger squat to body weight than an Olympic high jumper. So there's some specificity with that. I'm assuming we're talking here a little bit more, and I'll frame this question around 
a running two legs, so a basketball jump. Of course, you can dunk off one leg too, but I'm just going to frame it with the scope of a two-leg basketball jump or a two-leg volleyball jump. And so there's a few questions, Sean, that I would ask you before I gave you some principles to consider in your vertical jump journey. The first is, and I'm assuming there was a lot of hard work in getting to that squat. That's a very solid number. But the type of training that you use to get there does play a role in how you move forward. So let's just say if you were a power lifter and you lived and breathed the iron to get to that two and a half times body weight squat versus you lifted hard, but it was also in the scope of everything else you were doing. You were playing basketball, maybe you're doing some sprints or other types of training and you are lifting, but it's not the whole training program is not revolved directly around just lifting and oh, I absolutely have to hit this number type philosophy. I found athletes who, when they push the weightlifting button harder than anything else, and that is the only thing or the main thing that matters, maybe they weren't doing as good in their other sport, whatever that is. I've seen it in track and swimming. When athletes push that button so hard as a, almost a compensation, you could say, because the main sport isn't going as well, those athletes almost every time need a significant break from any sort of heavyweight training. A lot of times I will take them to only bodyweight training for a period of time as a washout. And that is always very helpful in those situations. So that's the first thing to consider. I would assume that it's probably a little bit more the balanced situation in your case, which then let's go to the next question. Are you a, uh, what is your rib cage? cage angle what archetype of athlete are you are you more of a speed jumper or a power jumper so that's the easiest most simple way to put it but then we could also say the speed jumper is a narrow infrasternal angle typically the wide or the power jumper is more of a wide infrasternal angle so if you've been listening to this podcast for a while you are hopefully familiar with those two topics uh, rick Franzblau, i had him on recently and he gave an absolutely amazing a summary of how he treats uh, and how he is developing his training programs with those rib cage angles in mind. And, and just very quickly, a narrow infrasternal angle, if we want to get the absolute archetype of that, look at like a very thin rail-like uh, Olympic high jumper, like a Mutaz Barshim type, someone who is very thin, spindly, rotational in nature. If you want to look at a wide if most people, I don't know if anyone listening remembers this, but there was a guy, he went by the handle squat doctor, not Fred Hatfield, Dr. Squat, which I think uh, Fred Hatfield was probably a wide as well. But uh, this squat doctor, he was squatting something like three times body weight and his standing vertical was insane. I don't think that was the era of jump, just jump mats and all that so much back then. But I believe he had vertex measured or hand measured like a 48 inch standing vertical with a three times body weight squat. So he was a wide infrasternal angle, more of a power type who could really harness that without, if an Olympic high jumper type really tried to get that squat up there and just push that button so hard, that deep squat button, there would be potentially, and I say potentially because I don't always want to have absolute statements, but there was a very, very high likelihood that there would be some negative shape change variables that are happening because of the compression with that narrow. Wides can handle heavy loading and pushing that button harder. So if you have a 2.5 times body weight, I am assuming that you are a wide ISA type and that you can handle it better. So if you are balancing the training, if you're more of a wide ISA, then chances are that 
Uh, yes, you could. I'll just say you could do jumping and sprinting for vert for sure, but you probably can handle and can use and leverage that strength stimulus more. It's a strength for you. So I do believe that there is good times to get away from lifting, to take breaks. I know Dan Bach, who's been on this podcast, has talked about that. Just, hey, lift for a while and then stop lifting for a while. It's as simple as that. And by doing that as well, you start to see how your body responds to that. How long can you go without lifting before you feel that not squatting at all is starting to chip in? And so that just by doing that, your awareness and your knowledge of that balance for you is going to start to grow. But all that being said, if you are a wide infrasternal angle and you've been squatting and you've achieved that weight, it's probably a strength for you and it's helpful. Boosh Nexator, uh, who's also been on this podcast a few times, has talked about this. He had, a, I think, a tweet recently talking about force plates. And if people attack their weaknesses on the force plate too much, now they're not feeding their primary engine. And so you always need to be asking, well, what's your big engine? What's that thing that, that stimulates your system on a very intense level? And I'll be talking about this principle later throughout these questions. Hopefully, I'll get to this question later on. But if there's always going to be things that are your big thing. For me, my big thing was honestly, I'm a narrow infrasternal angle, a much bouncier, I was a high jumper type. And squatting was definitely something that was stimulating to me for sure. But I would say even more stimulating was maximal jumping and sprinting, especially maximal plyometrics. I was bouncy and my big thing that really stimulated my system on a high level because I had the capacity to do it was things like depth jumps, like really high depth jumps. That got my system fired up. And I found that in my absolute best high jump and triple jump years, I really needed that, that I guess you could call it that, that nitrous oxide in the system. I had to have that in some way, shape or form. And I did use squatting too, and, and squatting played a role for me. For me as a, a narrow, uh, it wasn't, and it probably could have been if I really wanted it to be, but I like a two-thirds range squat seemed to be, have a really powerful potentiation stimulus for me from time to time. All this to say, there's going to be different things in your training bucket that offer a very high total systemic stimulation to your system. And so we always need to have those in mind. Last parting shot on this one, or I might have a couple, but one thing that's interesting is that discussion on, well, how strong is too strong? Can you ever be too strong or strength is never a weakness and that type of thing? And, and the older I get, I think my, my pendulum will swing back and forth where I do see athletes who try, I would say, <laughs> try or strain themselves. They strain themselves too much in the gym. They are going against the easy strength mentality, which I always have that in my mind of, for example, if I could do five reps with this weight, I do three. I know I have two in the bank. I'm going to recover from that lift really much more quickly so I can go do whatever else it is that I need. And that general line of adaptation is going to trend upwards slowly and patiently over time. That's always in my mind. And when I see people just straining every week where they're, they're, maybe their ego wants to see more weight on the bar or they can't take the idea if they're not you know, increasing X amount each week and you see that. I think it can, you can get jaded a little bit towards that pursuit of too high, I guess, too high of a maximal strength, let's say. What's interesting is that, again, this is where just experience and looking at absolutes comes in a little bit, is Joe Kovacs is a shot putter, a USA shot putter. And the shot put world record has gone down a couple times uh, recently in, with two athletes who have surpassed that old record that almost most certainly was steroid enhanced from the 90s. 
And two athletes have now surpassed that. And so Ryan Krauser is one, and then Joe Kovacs is another. And obviously, shot put is a very absolute strength, helpful event. And people have drawn up numbers where they'll say, all right, well, look, you, you need to bench 400 to, or 450 or whatever it is to really be in the game for being a world-class shot putter. And anything above that isn't going to be as helpful. And for some athletes, I definitely think that could be true without question. But then for others, it's others can benefit more from pushing that the bench or squat higher. And so you had Ryan Krauser. I don't know what Ryan's lift numbers are exactly. I'm sure he lifts heavy and lifts hard. But uh, Joe Kovacs is someone who who also broke that world record. Or he hasn't broken Krauser's record, but he threw like 76.3 recently. And the old world record was like 75.10 or something. And there was a little bit of a debate, I believe, online where Kovacs was squatting. This was several years ago. He was squatting like 700 for two or three reps or something like that, some very heavy weight. And the debate was, well, does he need that strength? Does he need it to throw a 16-pound ball 75 feet or whatever? And well, here it was. I believe he's still, I don't think he's changed anything with his training mentality. And the guy just threw 76.3, so surpassed that old world record. And I think he is a little bit shorter guy. I think he's only 6'1 or something like that. Only 6'1. I say that because Krauser, I believe, is like 6'7. So to me, that strength was the button he needed for that. And so all this just being said, it, it's, it's a roundabout way of saying that there's no absolutes, that I do think you need to A, take time away from heavy lifting to see how your body responds so you don't get too hung up on that being the only button you can push down. And obviously shot putting too, there's a greater strength need for shot put than jumping. There's a greater need of, for strength for two-leg jumping than one-leg jumping. And there's a greater strength need in two-leg jumping and shot putting than let's just say sprinting, top-end speed sprinting. So there's a spectrum that exists with all these things. But one, I do think that taking time away from weights to see that balance is helpful or heavy weights. And then two is just what feeds your engine and always being mindful of that thing that feeds your engine. And then finally, with the thing that feeds your engine, it's interesting because with jumpers and not even one leg, you will get some two leg jumpers as well who they could just always do it. They just always had it. They didn't have to lift heavy weights and they're 5'10 and they're getting their head up to the rim. And with that, I think that it's, it's interesting because once something is in the system, once you've used the heavier squats to increase your jump, which is a potent stimulus, it is kind of hard to go back. Jeff Moyers talked about this, and I think it was from a Natalia Verkashansky, that once you have this high-intensity thing in the system, it is difficult. I won't say it's impossible, but it, that thing kind of needs to be there. You've anchored that as a training stimulus. So all this being said, I take breaks. Again, take some breaks from the heavy lifting periodically, see how your body responds. Don't live and breathe the iron. I, I wouldn't, I would keep things in balance. And then I would just be mindful of those higher stimulus type things that are in the training program. So very multifaceted answer. And sometimes I have a habit of doing this when it is the first question of the podcast, but hopefully you found that helpful and informative. Uh, the last thing I'll say too, is I, I will get to sprinting as that stimulus as well. I think that is a really helpful tool in there as well. All right. Next question. Ty Leash asks, if you created a performance test for youth, what would you measure, time, or create? So a little bit uh, moving from that, all right, two-leg jump, max power end of the spectrum. So now we're talking youth training. And by youth, I, I think you could give that different, I mean, what are we talking about? Are we talking about 
uh, eight-year-olds, are we talking 10-year-olds, middle school, high school? I'll just treat this question as maybe a little bit more that middle school bracket. So let's just say ages 12 to 14 or something like that if we're talking youth. And so with that, I have a few things that I want to look at. And I'm looking at, yes, their jumping ability. So a multifaceted basic power. So how high can you jump? How fast can you sprint? How hard can you throw? And then also the elements of basics, basic strength and strength endurance, focus as well, and then willpower kind of goes in there. So we'll see how that unfolds. I, I wrote these down here that really, I believe, encapsulate those qualities. The first one focuses on strength, basic alignment, and then focus. And that one is either an isometric lunge hold or an isometric wall sit with a focus element. So whether you pick a lunge or a wall sit, it, to me, it's not a huge deal. But as they're doing that wall sit, and I first got this idea or this thought on my mind from Brady Volmering, who I had on the podcast a while back, but he was talking about uh, having different constraints that you put on top of your ISOs. And I believe one of them was, how long can I do this isometric hold and keep my focus on a particular point? So maybe I pick a point on the wall and I keep my focus on it. And on the offset, people might say, well, why does that matter? <laughs> uh, but if you spend time, especially, I, I believe, training youth, training athletes, and honestly, anybody, to be honest, I would say anyone from you know, 10 years old to 18, I see this is, and it's easy to bag on phones and whatnot and the dopamine generation, but the focus is, is such an important element in the training equation. And I think that one of the things that is damaging to me with, with phones in the gym, and so an athlete does their set and then they go check their phone and they do their set and check their phone or they, the first thing they do when they're out of the gym. And again, I'm, I'm 39 now, it's easy to be a curmudgeon, right? I'm maybe getting in that age bracket where I can be more of a curmudgeon on the youth today. But I, I do believe that's damaging because to me, what I have seen in an isometric and especially after Brady put that on my radar and I've done Instagram posts on this. I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast as much, but you can start to see, you train enough athletes and you start to see who's going to succeed and who's not, who's going to make training gains and who's not. And one of those things is, and I mentioned this in an Instagram post, is you can see it in their eyes and you can see focus in their eyes. You can see determination in their eyes. You can see the fact that they want to be good in their eyes. And I can have two different 12-year-old athletes, youth athletes in. And one, when they do an isometric, and if I even mention two, uh, whether I mention it or I don't, but let's just say I mention it, hey, I want you to keep your eyes focused here while you're doing this. The athlete who is determined, a self-starter, wants to be great, they can keep their eyes focused throughout the course of that isometric. The athlete who just doesn't have, and it's, it's physical and it's mental, emotional, does not have direction, does not have focus, does not have a, a, a goal, a vision of what they want to do, their eyes are all over the place. Like they're, maybe they can hold it for 10, but then it gets kind of uncomfortable and they're just looking off to the side. And if I don't say anything about the eyes, they're looking all over the place, anywhere but straight ahead. And you see this, you see this in the eyes of elite athletes. I've had the good fortune to spend time around Olympians, to train Olympians in the, in the weightlifting scope of things. And you see it with them. And there was, a, there was an old training video I was watching. It was with uh, Nick Simmons, an 800-meter runner, uh, who does a lot of run, fun run-based videos now. And I think he does an awesome job getting people excited about running and track and field type things. 
But if you watch his old training videos, I, I just view, I mean, I, I never was able to spend time <laughs> watching him train in person or anything. But if you look at somebody who's not built like an 800 runner, like if you look at like an 800 runner in track, you think like David Rudisha, that guy's got super long legs, super tendony and springy and efficient looking. And <laughs> Nick has not looked like that. He's a little bit shorter and stockier. And he ran 142 something in the 800 and the world record reducer ran like 141.00. But you think, well, what did it take for this guy to get to that level? It's not just the training program. And if you watch, there was a, a Jimmy Radcliffe was his strength coach, I believe, at Oregon. And you watch some of the clips and just look at his eyes when he sets up for a squat set. It's You can see that laser-like focus is there. And once you start to see that and notice it in different athletes, and it's something that you do pay attention to. And you can't force someone to do that. You can't, you can't force someone to have a vision. But athletes, you see that in athletes. And I do believe that a focus is really important there. So super long-winded answer to some sort of, hey, all right, we're going to do this wall sit. And I want you to pick a point on the wall. And as soon as you look away, I'm going to stop the clock. So something like that. And then the next one. So there you go. That's that. Maybe that's the whole test. But other things that I'm going to be testing, I really have become a fan of, and yes, just how many push-ups can you do is really a simple, cool test. I know back in the day, as Jeff Moyer and Jake Jensen were actually talking about that as like a readiness indicator. Hey, come on in. How many push-ups in a row can you do without slowing down? And that's, that's their readiness. That's like their little quick rig omega wave version of what they're doing there. And actually, there's, I think there's some definite validity to that. One thing I like, at least Taft was just talking about that as well on the podcast, was the idea of just really leveraging competition. I do think that that's, that's a really helpful thing. And I, I've constantly had that in my brain, but even more, even just since talking to Lee, like, all right, how can I make this? How can I attack on the intent? How can I put some time to tack up the intention here? And one thing I like is a, a 60 seconds. How many push-ups can you do in 60 seconds versus... If it's just, hey, how many push-ups in a row, what people will start to do is you get maybe 20 good ones and then five that are just more fixed. <laughs> you have the legs fixed and it's a spinal flexion and extension type thing. It just gets really bad. And not that that couldn't happen in 60 seconds, but I think in 60 at least, it's like, hey, get tired. Okay, now you're going to rest a second or two or five and then go back to it. And I think you can preserve some more quality with that. I also think there's more room for improvement. And I do think it's nice to have big spans of improvement like a vertical jump i would i would test a vertical jump of well a hurdle jump actually i'll get to that in a second but if you're let's just say for a just jump a vertical jump you will improve but how fast and how much you can improve is not as much as a 60 second strength endurance you could have people improving in that by leaps and bounds and it's something too that if you've been having like a little bit of a poor training session and you want to walk out with a win it offers you a little bit more chance to really walk out with that win. Hey, I improved in that 60-second push-up. So that's something I like as well. And I will say finally is I've modified that to a bear position. So instead of push-ups on the ground, which when athletes are ready, that's awesome. But for younger athletes especially, watching middle school or 12 or 13-year-olds do push-ups, it's almost always going to be more of a spinal extension oriented type push-up. And so I really like starting those athletes with push-ups in the bear position. So it's very common for younger athletes. Hey, we're going to start you with your hands on a bench. Like that's an easy way to make the push-up easier. But even still, you do get athletes who don't have really great core feedback. And so I've been a big fan of push-ups in a bear position. 
So where you're actually like a bear, like think I'm doing a bear call where my knees are almost directly under my hips. And it's really hard to cheat the spine when you're in that position. It's hard to have the legs fixed and just ex- get extra extension in the spine to finish the push-up. So that's a nice way to put in some basic constraints for a younger athlete where they're not going to cheat it as much. And then you're also offering them 60 seconds. So week after week, they can find some more improvements through that. And then what you could do is you could have your younger intro athletes doing that bare position 60 seconds. And then at some point, we'll move it to the floor. So now it's floor pushups in 60 seconds. It could be you know, how cleanly they're able to do a basic floor pushup that offers them that gateway to being able to move the pushup to the floor. It could be an age-based thing, uh, however you'd want to do it. So next thing, we'll be talking about jumping. So just jump mats or vertical jump mats are super common. I personally think, well, there's a couple things with that, though, that would lend me to say I'd actually rather use a running hurdle jump as my jump base measure. So we're talking jump, sprint, throw. I like hurdle jumps because just jump mats are very easy to cheat. <laughs> and I think that's that's starting to go around the the social media, the Twitter sphere, because coaches will say, oh, my my athlete improved their vertical jump eight inches or something like that. And then they post the the after and the athlete is jumping and they are bending their legs on the landing substantially. They're landing in a half squat on that landing. And unless you're looking for that and notice that, you might not think twice about that. But what I found, and uh, I, I should make a post on this at some point, but if I'm doing a jump, just me, and I did this the other day, I can tell you how much you're going to gain by those various forms of landings. So if I just jump and I land with my legs fairly straight, that's baseline. Let's say I jumped 30 inches like that. And I did this the other day. So I jumped to baseline. Then I did another jump where I let myself land the jump on the jump mat in a deep squat. So a deep, deep squat. And I instantly gained about six inches. (laughs) I went from 30 to 36. And honestly, I, I probably didn't even jump as high the second time. So you're gaining around six or maybe even seven inches by a max land in a max deep squat. And so if you're landing in about 90 degrees of a squat, you're probably gaining at least three. And so just keep that in mind. And, you know, I will say that's not a bad, if I'm never posting, if I'm not using that as a before and after, I don't think it's necessarily always horrible in the sense that if an athlete sees that PR and they genuinely feel that they've improved and jumped that much higher, and they now believe that about themselves that's not a bad thing. Of course, there always is that like reality check later on. Maybe they get with a coach later on that makes them test it strictly and then they get all ticked off because they're like, oh, with my ma- my past coach, I jumped this. And <laughs> yeah, that's that's going to be a problem at some point if you know it becomes that. And sometimes athletes can't take seeing a worse number on the just jump mat, so they'll start cheating the landing so they don't have to see as bad of a number or whatever. That's kind of one of the reasons I'm not, I, I do like jump mats. I-, I-, I will say I absolutely like them. I think that uh, I have a plyomat as well, and that has a lot of really cool options, RSI options, or I'm sure you get it with force plates too. So not that I'm not a fan of jump mats, but I like the hurdle jump. And I will say though too, the hurdle jump doesn't account for height. If you're really tall, you're going to be able to jump higher. But in terms of something that relative to you is giving you great feedback, it's not just a test, but it's also a great exercise. It's just, hey, go run and jump over a hurdle off two feet or even off one. Maybe you do different tests. Uh, What's your best two foot jump over this hurdle? What's your best one foot jump over this hurdle? I like using that for athletes and athlete feedback on that youth level. And even uh, as you move to high school and college, I think it's a great test. I will test uh, using a, a basic hurdle. And I say, when I say basic hurdle too, 
get the 60 inch tall agility plyo hurdles. They're yellow. They're amazing. You put sand in the bottom. They're not too terribly expensive. Those are some of my favorites. And so, yeah, just a running hurdle jump. And I will say as well, the weight room can do a very good job of helping people improve their standing vertical, but then the running vertical and the reactive, it can transfer less. I've found this myself in times that I have trained very heavy on the weights, a, a narrow ISA, or I'm a narrow and for sternal angle, trained very heavy on the weights, very heavy on power, longer contact time type stuff. And in that process, I was not doing the running jump type thing. And I found that my standing vertical got really, really good. But then I'd go to actually do a running. I've talked about this on this podcast before. Go do a running jump and dunk it. And it was horrible, respectively. So for me, I always, I just really prize running jumps. There's more coordination there too, if you think about it from a level of progression and regression. A standing vertical jump, you know, outside of being a test, is a regression to all other types of jumping. So I just, I love using running hurdle jumps for that. Other things, throw. So I think that all youth athletes, maybe, you know, when you're in high school or beyond and you're a specialist, this probably isn't as big of a thing, if, especially if you're not a throwing athlete. But for me, no matter what sport you play, where you're going, if I have athletes who are in that 12 to maybe up to 15, 16 year old bracket, even if you're a basketball player, I still want to do a light medicine ball overhead throw for speed or distance and a side throw for speed or distance. And I will say that as well, because a lot of these throws, like let's just say a side throw for speed, there's a lot of rotational power in that. And rotational power shows up in other skills, such as a running, even a running two-leg jump, for example, there is a lot of rotational vectors going on. And so those are baseline skills that can branch out later on. But yeah, if it was like a college basketball player, there's really no point in doing like a overhead throw for speed or anything like that. But for the younger athletes, I think that's a great thing. And with those throws for speed, you want light medicine balls. So ideally like a two-pounder, maybe a four. Sometimes it's harder to get the, the really, really light ones. A lot of gyms usually have like the eight-pound and 10-pound sitting around. But I would definitely want something pretty light, like a four for the side or a six for the side throw, and then maybe a one or a two for the overhead throw. Sprinting is pretty basic. Everyone sprints. So 30-meter sprint, I think that getting splits is great too, like a 10, like a get a 10 and then see what they're 10 to 20 or 10 to 30 is. And then finally, I'm just making sure I checked everything off my list here, is hanging for time. So hanging from a bar for time, or if an athlete's strong enough, uh, max and can do it with good technique, a max pull-up. So another basic upper body strength endurance. Hanging for time is also just like the uh, lunge with the vision. So can you keep your focus? There's also, uh, and willpower and focus, I think are interrelated, but there's also a willpower element in hanging for time. That's not to say that (laughs) Getting up on a bar is going to increase an athlete's willpower. I think that it's that's a, a little bit more or a lot more a show of an athlete's willpower. So if an athlete has a lot of willpower, they're the athlete who, if you've heard of the study where the athlete or the athlete, the children were five and their researchers said, they did a willpower test. They said, hey, here's a donut. If you wait four minutes, uh, you'll get two donuts. And But if you eat the donut before the four minutes is up, then you don't get another donut and then They tracked those kids later throughout their lives and the kids who had enough willpower to wait four minutes and get the two donuts they did better in their school or whatever their their pursuits in life they did better at that thing that willpower i think does fit it would be interesting too if they would have done a hang for time as well uh later when you're 12 or 13 how long can you hang from a bar that would have been interesting but there is willpower in that i will say it's there is things i think that 
if an athlete is just extremely poor at that and does really desire to get better, I, I have used like goal setting, like writing your your goal on the board in front of peers, using visualizations and seeing people make substantial gains. But at the same time, I don't think that <laughs> I don't think just hanging from the bar every single day is automatically going to give someone tons of willpower. It's it's very much something that you observe. But I do think that bottom line is getting better at that's also a measure of everything. I find that when I have or I'm managing stress in my life well, training is generally going in a great direction. I can also hang farther or longer from a bar. All right. So next question here and that i've been i've been going a long time on these answers but uh, these are some good questions so thanks again for people who are asking these so let's get to the next one here let's see here lipper canada bb asks can you be fast without being strong so not talking about a big squat so i'll go back to the the first question so very related and i touched on this and and getting into more of the pure speed level of things i know that for let's just say the 40 yard dash I believe it was Rhea, who's at Alabama now, who was saying that 1.7 times body weight squat is kind of that upper limit where beyond that, it doesn't really matter for your 40-yard dash time. Whether you back squat 1.7 or 2.0 or 2.2, that doesn't matter for the 40. And there's even athletes who are going to defy that the other way, athletes who might only have a 1.3 but are lightning fast. Or you could look at Usain Bolt, who didn't like to squat, who has the world record in the 100 meters and also ran a pretty good 40. There was a, after he was done competing, he ran a 40 somewhere and ran like a 4.2. So this is something that's, if we look at it from an absolute strength perspective, okay, we have on one end, shot putter needs more absolute strength. Then the dunk or a volleyball jump off two legs needs uh, less strength than shot put, but more strength than sprinting. And then we have sprinting. And it is interesting, though, too, because a lot of sprinters by nature, are they're wired, they're fast twitch, they're explosive, they're powerful. So if they really wanted to push that squat button, a lot of them could get their squat up pretty high. But I do believe that uh, the track jumps and the track sprints compared to, let's just say, a, a standing vertical, for example, I don't think you need as much strength there to be great. And uh, like I said, it, it's good to train strength. So if you really if you do really like squatting and you get a neural charge out of that squatting heavy and you're doing it in balance to the rest of the program and you're sticking to some easy strength principles where you're not straining week after week, I do think it's, it's helpful. But I absolutely believe you can be fast without being that strong and especially speed as compared to jumping. And I'll give an example here as well. And that, that example is this. If an athlete is built to do something well, I don't believe they need as much extra stuff, stuff meaning all the extra lifting and plyos and special strength or whatever to reach their highest potential. Uh, we could think of it, if we look at uh, like racing dogs, like think of a greyhound versus just an average dog, like a Labrador retriever or something. <laughs> the, the funny thing would be to say, oh, a greyhound versus a wiener dog, you know, a dog that isn't meant to sprint at all or doesn't look like it's meant to sprint. But if we think of like a greyhound versus a Labrador, think of the athletes that are absolutely built to sprint as the greyhounds. And I don't think that, and we think of that too, that's almost like the narrow ASA, the really like they have the sinewy and they, they're just built to run. I think that they can definitely get away with a lot less, especially when you think of it too. If you watch a dog race, there was a, Winston was this dog's name. It was a greyhound and it ran the 
hundred, I'm probably going to butcher this, but I think it ran a hundred meters in like six seconds or something like that. And you watch this dog run and the, uh, the vertical oscillation is absolutely insane. It is so fast, not just from a, I guess you could say biomechanics and stride length, but just the neural wiring of this thing. And you think about how much output that greyhound gets from running fast. And so back to the squat example, just think of the output. If I'm a wide infrastructural angle and I'm strong and I like lifting and I get a lot of neural output out of that lift, that greyhound is getting a ton of neural output and, and total stimulation of the organism out of running that 100 meters in six seconds. And I think that athletes who are just built to sprint get a lot of stimulation out of just sprinting really fast, sprinting competitively and everything that goes with that. And for them, that's their big thing. They don't need as much uh, extra things outside of themselves. Whereas maybe more that Labrador type, you could just think an average, more of an average build. There might be other things that they can do that they get that extra neural stimulation out of. Maybe it is lifting heavier. Maybe it's doing the plyometrics. And they might have a more diverse skill set of things that really stimulate their their organism to its highest level. So again, for me, that was a plyometrics really helped me to do that. And for someone else, it might be more of a weight, heavier weightlifting type thing. And then you have the people with sprinting. So it is across the board a little bit, but just generally speaking, uh, to be fast, and especially the, the farther out you go. So you have step one in a sprint, you have about 0.18 seconds of ground contact time. Every sprint step from there up to top end speed is going to be less and less until you're getting to around a tenth of a second or a little less if you're a fast Olympic sprinter in that top end ground contact. So the absolute strength requirements once you get several steps into a sprint are lower and lower. And so it, at that point, to me, it's just what stimulates your system well and without overdoing any of those things. So even if a squat or a depth jumper is really stimulating to me, I can't just completely rely on that. At some point, I have to sprint and I have to get into sprinting and I have to manage that insanely well if I want to be as good as possible. So again, just depends. Are you wide? Are you narrow? What things are you good at? And realizing that if you're built to sprint, your strength requirement is not going to be as high as someone else and you just need to make sprinting your big rock. All right, next thing, and speaking on sprinting, so next question we have, Joe Ferrigno. Joe asks, what should I be thinking about feeling from a technique perspective during sprinting? And this is where I, I really like, and there's a lot of ways to do this. We have uh, internal and external cues, which obviously a lot of people are very against internal cueing in the course of anything that's fast and athletic, and the research would definitely agree with that, that when people are given internal cues and sprinting such as put your arm here put your leg here <laughs> be in this position that causes an immediate decrement in performance and if you've been in coaching for a while you've i'm sure you've seen that and then we have moving through external cues and into we have analogies so in sprinting it'd be like there's you're a plane slowly taking off as you rise upward would be an example of an analogy in sprinting so you're you're telling through story and Ultimately, the brain, as it pertains to athletic movement, it understands the concept of story, or you could even say myth, more than it does just these explicit put-your-arm-here type cues. There's also, moving even further, and this to me is just the simplest way to do this by far, and not to say that I think using and understanding the full range of all the cues you could give is helpful, but going into noticing and just awareness and I think no matter what your, your skill your, or your skill set, your cueing set is, 
no matter what, we need to be on that awareness train on some level, that noticing train. Helen Hall calls it the gift of notice. And so um, I've spent a lot of time on some answers thus far, so I am going to go into just the level of noticing and awareness here. So on the way of notice, when I'm in upright running, you could, for example, notice, instead of saying, put your chest here, stick your chest forward in front of your hips, lean forward this much, I would say, notice how as your chest pushes forward in your sprinting, notice how that changes things. Notice how it feels. Does it feel faster, easier? Does it make other things change in the sprint? I might just ask you. I might not say, oh, that looked good. I might just say, hey, all right, so I asked you to notice how your chest changed the sprint, the position of the forward lean. Tell me what you noticed there. You can take that to shoulder roll, so where your shoulders are rolling back and forth. Just notice how much they are. That's all I want you to do is just notice how much they're rolling back and forth. Same thing with the hips. How are your hips oscillating? What's the amount of hip oscillation as you're sprinting? And within oscillation, that might not mean anything to a particular athlete who hasn't. Um, it might not mean it. You might have to actually give them something, uh, a motion to help them understand what oscillation is. But with that in mind, usually when an athlete just simply puts their intention on something, puts their awareness on a body part and what it's doing, a lot of times the body can work together to make that the optimal in the meantime. And if we talk about the learning process too, I think so often we can be addicted to, it's a training session and man, I need an athlete to look like this at the end of the training session. If they don't look like this right at the end, then somehow the session is a failure. But to me, an awareness and more of a noticing-based model, or at least having that in your toolbox that you're regularly going to, allows athletes to really take ownership of that learning process and learn at the pace that's right for them. So I think that we should ideally have all these tools available. And one thing for me personally, getting more into Nick Winkleman talking about analogies and story and even writing a fiction-based chapter in a sports training book, I think is amazing. To me, I... That's something I want to spend more time on. But the awareness and the noticing piece and that conversation to me has always been really helpful. And it's also something that makes my own training much more of a, a meditation, much more embodied because I, when I go out and I do sprints, so oftentimes, if this was me, let's just say 10 years ago, I might just go do sprints and just have the timer out and just see how fast I can go. I'm going to do three or four sprints, see how fast I can go. And that's that's great. That has a very specific adaptation. And the body is learning through that too. You're trying one sprint. Did that work? Did it not? Try the next sprint. There might be some stuff consciously and subconsciously adapting. Nowadays, especially to having more in um, my level of awareness on things that go into sprinting, it's fun to do a sprint and just notice what happens. It's fun to do a 150-meter sprint and notice when subtle fatigue starts entering the system, what's the first thing my brain tries to do to reset the coordination? For example, maybe it's overdoing the arms, and then it's like, all right, the arms, I think to myself, maybe my arms are trying to overcompensate too much. How can I get my spine and my rib cage to actually take this job just a little bit more, for example? So just things like that, things that are subtle and notice-based, notice what your body's trying to do. So that's what I would say is a really good thing to start with, when it comes to assessing sprinting, you're going to be, to me, the greatest athletes are the ones who are the most in tune with their bodies. They aren't relying on a coach to tell them everything what to do. And, and the last thing I'll say too is even if I could use a really 
you know, a really great system of internal and external cues to somehow get an athlete to, to have certain positions and look a certain way. The thing would be is, well, how much did the athlete have to put into that? What was their learning process to achieve that, that technical model? So always, always have awareness and noticing as a part of what you're doing. Next question, Ab14 asks, how would you structure a winter sprint training program for a sprint track season? So this, there could go a lot of different ways here. I will say if you are doing winter sprint training and it's a, a spring, spring, spring track season, I think I wrote sprint track season there. If it's a spring track season, I'm assuming it's high school track. And so for high school, and this would go for a lot of levels on, and it just might change a little bit as you would go down a level or up a level. But I really enjoy the ends to middle approach. So lots of on one end of things, more the power end of things. We have lots of acceleration work, sleds, and things that are generating more power. And then on the other end of things, uh, you have the longer run. So for me, simply enough, on the high school level, that is, and some people think different ways of this, but that's tempo sprints. And tempo sprints, though, that are more, especially starting out, that are more on the, uh, as Charlie Francis would say, that low end. We're not in that intensive zone, but it's, it is more actually aerobic in nature. And there is a level of aerobic development that all athletes need. I'm not saying sprinters should go run three and four mile runs. I don't think that's the best thing that you could do with your time in training sprinters. I don't really think that's a great idea, but I think that doing six by 200 to develop uh, extensive tempo, something like that to develop aerobic capacity and get basic running volume in, I don't think that's a bad thing at all, especially when on the other end of it, you are doing quality acceleration work, quality power work. So those two things are the ends, and then you're moving towards the middle as you get closer to track season within moving towards the middle to me there's also that the speed is fly sprints so for example if i'm doing a 10 meter fly and i'm starting to do that maybe i go three or four weeks of that basic acceleration and tempo after a few weeks of that i start to do fly sprints to prepare for that max speed component and i do believe in always training power and always staying pretty close to that competitive top output which is the fly sprint and it is the actual max velocity you can't go too long without doing something in that realm so that's why i would do a few weeks of prep and then get into that but within fly sprints i also believe in the constant constantly having somewhere to go so for me i really want athletes to be getting personal best to be seeing a personal best hopefully week after week on some level and so how that might look in a 10 meter fly would be initially let's say we start in early february and I'm going to give them a 15-meter run into that fly initially. Then after three weeks, let's maybe tack on five meters. So no matter what, you know that when you give them five more meters, they're going to see some better times. And psychologically, psychological from a perspective of psychological momentum, that's great. And then a few weeks after that, maybe I give them 25 meters. So just always having somewhere to go there is really helpful when building out that season. And then, of course, too, we're, we're going to be doing some strength training and lifting weights. Gameplay, I think, is really important in winter for track. Some sort of game to warm up often, twice a week, uh, whatever space you have indoors, whatever you can work. Maybe it's handball in a small space or trash ball where it's like handball and you're trying to hit a trash can with a ball or volleyball or whatever, whatever it is that you can do. I think games are so helpful. And if athletes, a lot of athletes in high school track these days, sadly, don't do other sports as much as they used to. So giving athletes and whether they do or they don't having that experience as part of that early training, I think is helpful. 
Finally, uh, isometric holds has been more and more on my radar throughout my time in this podcast. And one thing I've been a fan of is actually mixing isometrics with tempo sprints. So for example, let's say we have that six by 200 and I'm going to throw some iso holds into it. And I've had good success doing this, been getting great feedback from athletes. I enjoy doing it myself. If I am low on warm-up time, I will just go out and do this with the, the first iso hold being literally the first thing I do. So it would be do like an iso lunge for 30 seconds each leg, then go run a 200, walk back, do an iso lunge for 35 seconds, go run a 200, walk back, iso. So it basically goes lunge, sprint, lunge, sprint, lunge, sprint. And with that in mind, you might do maybe instead of six or seven 200s or whatever, maybe I just do five, but I have the isos being a part of that five or six. And now back to the awareness piece too, the cool thing with the isos, it is is it is very high on the level of awareness and especially when you do them with a nice upright torso position you're pulling down into it you're aware of the angles in that lunge movement i think that there's a lot of really good things that happen in that interplay between more of what we could call the hardware and the software or more of the alignment of the body and more the more raw qualities of muscle and muscle length and tension and then more of the software i'm at speed coordinating at speed in the sprint so those are some things that I think are really interesting in that starting point for a high school athlete, high school season. So hopefully that gives you some good ideas. Those are definitely some elements that I would find helpful there. Okay, next question. How do I, or Nate, or N, it says N Bartles. So uh, N Bartles one asks, how do I balance doing drills and sprinting in practice? So there's a couple ways that you could go about this. One is, I would say the more typical or traditional way, which is to warm up with drills and constraints and i'll say constraints too because when we think about drills if we're talking sprinting or talking drills inevitably we go to sprint drills which vertical marching sprint drills just there are some shared characteristics with with sprinting or general athletic movement we could call them i like to almost in my head rename them rename them as dynamic cross crawls <laughs> And, you know, who doesn't love a dynamic cross-crawl pattern? Like there is relevance to gait there and there's vertical coordination. But when you move from a skipping marching type drill or a vertical marching drill to sprinting, there are a lot of differences. Namely, the main one being you're moving from more of a sewing machine motion with the legs to now in sprinting, you have a wheel. And those are about as different as you could possibly get. So, that I mean, honestly, if you just want a quick, you could feel this out how the sprint drill and the sprint fit or more better put don't fit together very well is do an a skip for 10 20 meters and then try to transition that into sprinting and it's not going to look right uh, if athletes athletes who don't know any better and are taught to run tall and lift the knee high and step over the knee it will feel right if that's what you're trying to do but if you look at how athletes actually sprint and you compare that to an a skip then it is completely different. There's a video, and when I do presentations sometimes, I will highlight there is this athlete who the coach is having her do an A skip and then has her transition that A skip into a sprint. And there are so many things off with that sprint from arm position to the timing of the knee swinging through, which now is way ahead, actually. The, the knee swing is way rushed in that situation instead of being a balance a balanced wheel with balanced front side and backside mechanics working together uh, it just doesn't really work out if you've been listening to this podcast you probably know my feelings on the specific transfer of sprint drills to sprinting again i think there's just fine general adaptations that those can offer and 
in many cases, I would just do them at the beginning of practice just as a group rhythmic cross crawl. There's some extensive plyo qualities to it activity, but I wouldn't try to say sprint like this. So in terms of drills and constraints, I'll talk about things that I feel like have more of a close, a closer intersection to actual sprinting. So we could say for those, let's say mini hurdles that are low. So two to four inch mini hurdles running over those running up a, a slow, a low grade hill. That's a basic constraint of sprinting. You could also say running down a low grade hill or light resisted towing. Like these are all basic constraints of sprinting. So what I could do is, yes, I could warm up with these, but I could also superset these. And now again, we're talking about constraints and we're not talking about typical sprint drills. So I could superset a low grade hill sprint with a regular sprint. I could superset a mini hurdle run with a regular sprint, uh, those types of things. I could also warm up with them. You could intermix them as needed, but I just think that the closer the constraints are in nature to the actual uh, sprint that you are doing, I don't think, I, I think that it just all comes more naturally and more intuitively, and you can really be creative with it. In many ways, too, people will do, you could look at the, like the Bondarchuk model, and I don't know that he always did it like this, but you could you start with the main thing, so the sprinting, and then you move into the special exercise. Maybe that's a hill sprint. And then you move into the thing that less transfers, so the weightlifting, but still general um, adaptation is important and so on down the line. So many things that you could do with that. But I think the key is is just that finding finding the constraints that fit more closely that are the SDEs or special developmental. They're much closer in nature to the actual sprint than a sprint drill, I would say, is more of an SPE which is that third brick down. It's, it's even further down. It has less in common. It has some in common, but it has less. I could talk about that uh, for a while, and video would be helpful with it, but those are just things to keep in mind there. Okay, next question. Raj asks, how do you differentiate between knee collapse and shin angle change in sprinting? And this is a big one because this actually fits into a little bit of the, the talk on or the thoughts on the run tall What's too tall? What's too squatted? Who Are you telling me I should run squatted or tall or whatever? To me, a, a lot of it just has to do with timing, okay? And ultimately, when it comes to hip height in running, I believe that we all have our own signature, signature hip height. Look at the difference between men and women, for example. Women have a naturally lower center of mass than men do. And if you watch men and women sprinting, I had a few posts on Instagram of the it was like the anchor leg of the 4 by 100 meter relay. At, it was either the recent world championships or the Olympics. I want to say it was the Olympics. And if you watch the women, and it's the same camera angle, women have a generally lower hip height and a little bit more knee bend at mid stance than the men do. And so in looking at that, it makes sense. Women have a lower center of mass. And it, that's not the only factor. There's many factors at play here. But if we look at the water or, or swimming, <laughs> swimming, I think, can teach us a lot about track and field and technical acquisition. And Bill Boomer, who recently passed away, but he, I think Sam Wiest, who was on a while ago, may have mentioned Bill Boomer. Bill was a coach who had, I believe, no, ex, uh, no swim experience and then got into swim coaching with a very beginner's mind. And one of the things that Bill did that I thought was very interesting is he had athletes do or find what was called their aquatic signature or their water signature. And to find that, they would lay face down in the water and just surrender to the water. They would let their body find whatever its natural position was in the water. 
And for some athletes, their feet would sink farther to the bottom of the pool than others. Other athletes, would their feet would be higher to the top of the water. But whatever position you found yourself in, and for me personally, my feet will sink almost all the way to the bottom. Maybe that's why swimming was just not my jam so much, but I'm sure maybe Bill could have definitely helped me out there with that. But whatever your signature was kind of dictated or it really gave influence to what was the ideal stroke, swim stroke that you would use, or even swim distance, I believe, a little bit. Those, uh, I don't know exactly, but I know he used the signature to really help determine the stroke type and what your main strengths were going to be in the water. And so he could watch people do this signature movement, this signature uh, lying down and then see what position they ended up in and be like, hey, I think you're, you must be, and not knowing anything about their history, say, well, you must be a breaststroke or you might be a butterfly or you, this is maybe your best race. And we don't, uh, like Kibway Johnson said on this podcast, is when we try to put everybody in the same box under the same principles, we really can hurt the artistry of all this. And to me, there's not a whole lot better example of artistry, teaching, uh, treating each athlete as an N of one. And Rick Franzblau talked about that as well, than having some sort of signature. Now, it's probably harder to do that on the land <laughs> than if you can have an athlete lay in the water. But that just being said, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different potential hip heights. And so with that also being said, so the question that Raj asked, I think is, it's awesome. How do you differ- differentiate between knee collapse and shin angle change? And I think that the question would be, well, when are you running too squatted? And, oh, you're, you know, we're doing squatty runs for training. And isn't that going to teach someone to run too squatted and X, Y, Z? And I, I don't believe so. But if an athlete did come in, I will say this uh, test would be helpful to determine if an athlete might be collapsing too much in the scope of running. And so when an athlete sprints and the foot is going to hit, it'll hit slightly in front of the hips in upright running. You need that vertical support if it hits directly under the hips. If the first contact is right under the hips, you're probably going to fall on your face. And the body is really smart and it knows that the foot needs to strike slightly in front. What's going to happen is that foot's going to hit. As the foot hits in sprinting and the hip passes over the foot, when the hip is directly over the arch, the middle arch of the foot, there will be some bend in the knee. There has to be. There cannot be a completely straight leg at that point. So there's going to be some bend in the knee. And then the hip will keep moving over the foot. So the hip will now be in front of the foot. And now here's where I believe we know if it's a collapse happening or versus good solid shin angle change. So the shin angle just changing as the hip passes over the foot. So when the uh, foot first strikes in sprinting, the angle of the shin will be negative. It's angling backwards towards the hip. When the hip is in front of the foot in sprinting, the shin angle will be positive. So that change, that forward rolling, running is angular, that forward roll is shin angle change. So that's going to happen. But when knee collapse is happening, and the shin angle change can actually be too fast when the foot stays heel down for too long. It stays as a class one lever for too long. So to me, that's, that's just the big one, is looking at the timing of when the heel comes up off the ground, and that's going to dictate uh, which direction I tend to go with my sprint intervention. Next question, we have Coach D. Shack. He says, how do you like laying out a warm-up? Any typical progressions or key movements? And so just quickly, uh, this is a great question. I absolutely love the warm-up, the dynamic, the game and play-based warm-up thing. I did a podcast with the guys at the Cutoffs and Coffee podcast, 
Uh, that was a lot of fun, and I went all into my warm-up process there. And so I'll just quickly touch on this as I like doing the, uh, David Gray said, it's sensory to intensity trend. So for me, sensory to intensity means that we start with things that are more on the ground. So I'll start with a lot of crawls and groundwork and that type of thing and trying to move it at a quicker pace. Rhett Larson, when he, when he was on recently, he talked about the thermogenic box that he wants to check. And I think that's really important. It was Anthony Blazevich who was on the podcast back a long time ago talking about how just muscle temperature increasing has a direct correlation with power output. So we need to increase muscle temperature. So I get it a lot of times by doing uh, high-density crawl-based things on the ground. So a lot of sensation. You have the hands on the ground as well. Uh, you could also move directly from there. And I've, I've done this before. Uh, directly from the ground, if we talk about things that are more ground, as uh, Pat Davidson would say in the podcast he recently did, staying in the theme of more ground is moving from ground-based work to roughhousing. Roughhousing, you're also interacting with objects that aren't as deformable. You're trying to push someone else, like if you have like a push-off-the-log competition, you have athletes on a, a log, which that actually is more, now that is less ground, but you're trying to push the other athlete off and you're... Um, interacting with them on that level or you're trying to wrestle a med ball away from the other athlete something like that so you're moving up the uh, sensory to intensity chain and then now maybe you're getting more airborne you're now going to start to get into some chasing or racing or more ball oriented type movements maybe it's the tennis ball drop drill now where the athletes are now racing forward to catch the tennis ball so that would be just one way you could do it where it's ground to something that's roughhousing that now you're standing up on two feet but you're still having more of a a non-deforming interaction, and then you're moving into higher velocity stuff with a ball. So that's that's one way you could do it. Another way too, to be honest, is and, and there's so many ways to do a warm up. So many ways. And if you listen to Rhett's podcast, you'll definitely see that. I mean, Rhett loves the idea of every time there is a novelty element. And Rhett script gets his. I know he scripts his out. We talked about this, where I actually go a little bit more off the cuff, and so I guess I get my novelty by just i'll watch them i usually will know the first few things i'm going to do but then as they're doing that i get an idea hey let's let's try this with the group now i think and then judging the energy in that movement and seeing how it goes or knowing how many rounds of a, a warm-up circuit to do based off the energy and how they're interacting with that the other thing i'll say with the warm-ups that i really like doing and i mentioned this in the podcast with Rhett, is i do like um there's there's the fun warm-ups that the novel the games getting that social and emotional interaction to really warm people up the way a game of basketball warms you up for a vertical jump or honestly any game like I ultimate frisbee I've been playing lately and that's helped me to hit verticals that have been way higher than I've tested recently but you can also use an iso hold for a warm up and that's like an austerity measure and so often I mentioned the phones at the beginning of the podcast I think so often we are so at the level of comfort and things that are interesting and entertaining we never really get into austerity, which is kind of taking all the fancy stuff away, a Spartan mindset. And if we get, I think that a Spartan mindset periodically and, and regularly, to be honest, but you can do that in the warm up as well. A common trend might be to have the fun warm up, then do more of your lifting or outputs, and then do the austerity, uh, which uh, Austin Yoakum, I think, and Will Rattel were talking about that. There, there's so many ways to do this, but you can also do the austerity measure before the lift. So, hey, Hey, we got squat day today. We're going to start with five minutes on the clock. I need you to hit that wall sit for as long as you can in this five minutes. Shake your legs out and then, all right, let's say with the first, we'll start with the first set here, something like that. 
you can do that too. And again, it, I think that you can become imbalanced sometimes with the too high. If training is just everything is hard and that's the only thing you have to make training more difficult, I think that's an issue. But uh, treating things on the level of austerity, I do think is also important. So, all right, other questions here. A lot of really good ones and I, my answers have definitely been on the longer side of things. So I'm sorry for people who have asked and I haven't been able or I won't be able to get to these due to time, but we'll just keep rolling here. Alex Hunt asks, have you experimented with long distance skateboarding, scootering to help with long jump, etc.? Love this question. Brings me back to Sheldon Dunlap's episode. This was back. Sheldon Dunlap back. I don't remember what it was. It was before episode 100, I want to say. And he was talking about longboarding and how the leg that was interacting with the ground, he ended up getting more pop with that for his long jump. So uh, short answer is I did do some skateboarding, actually. And I was thinking about Sheldon's experience when I was doing this. I went to Return to the Source, which is Rafe Kelly's retreat back in summer of 2021. After that retreat, I decided to take a short break from traditional training and just do like skateboarding for a few weeks. And it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I will say I don't feel like my, my foot outputs for me personally, and maybe I wasn't going as far as Sheldon, maybe just a little bit different with the variables there. But for me, I would say I didn't really see that in my single leg jump show up as much, but maybe I wasn't as good at it either. I had, for some of the time there, I had a board that was horrible and old and not fast at all too. Uh, I, I will say I do rollerblading and I rollerbladed a lot in high school. And if we talk about less ground or the proprioceptive foot training, if you, Gavin McMillan, if you look at his training and he was on the show talking about like figure skating early on in his career and then that being really athletically helpful for him. And then they do a lot of the balancing high, less ground foot stuff. If you rollerblade, you feel the dynamic stabilization of the foot and the ankle happening almost on the millisecond as you're going, especially if there's like little rocks or you're trying to balance on one leg. It is just crazy the amount of foot and ankle stimulation that you're getting with that. And so often we do just think of training as things that only happen in the gym. I can tell you, I think that doing a lot of rollerblading and that type of thing when I was younger really helped my foot and ankle strength and function moving into more of a high performance track and field situation later on. So yeah, sorry, I don't have the the great experience to really give you a good answer on the rollerblading, longboarding, but I definitely don't think it's a bad thing. I think anything where you're on a board on wheels offers that nice, less ground stimulation. All right, next question. It's me, Super Mario 20. Your opinion about Jefferson curls? So yeah, I think Jefferson curl, curls were basically you're, you're rolling spinal segmenting down, standing on a bench with weights. It's like, a, like a, the opposite of an RDL where you're basically touching your toes with weights. I think those are great. To be honest, for me personally, I tend to use unweighted spinal rolls more. So basically the same thing, but just with your spine. And they're both a solid exercises. I think I just use the rolls more because there's maybe a little bit more of an awareness component to it. But I think they're both fine. I've used the Jefferson curls in the past, and I think they're a good exercise. All right, just a couple more here. Marcus Cornford says, do you think coaches should use exercise as punishment? This is an awesome question. And I think because this so often a lot of the questions too revolve and, and which is amazing, but more about speed and power and, and all those constructs. So this one, I will say, and I, my team sport coaching experience where I am doing the coaching and not track and field and swimming where those <laughs> very little will you see uh, exercise be used as punishment in those sports because the, the kind of the joke is you have cross country runners wearing the shirt that says 
my sport is your sports punishment or something. So I'm more talking about team sports here. And I think it's very easy. And I've heard like really smart people talk about not using exercises punishment in a team sport. And I think it's more the word punishment, maybe if we reframe that. And so here's what I mean is I think that using a physical intervention when an a- when a group of athletes is not performing the- to their highest ability, they're not in the right mental state, using a physical intervention to break them out of that, I think is okay. And maybe the, the term punishment, maybe it's-, it's how much shame is injected into that situation. So here's what I mean by that. And I'll use things I've seen in observation. Again, I haven't done this as an actual team sport coach, but here's a good example is back when I was at Cal, I think it was the uh, water polo team. Our water polo team was playing UC Long Beach or something like that. And the we were just killing them at halftime. I mean, it was like a total blowout. And <laughs> and Long Beach was ranked okay. Like they weren't a horrible team. And so they were not playing well, getting totally blown out. And it was halftime. And their coach was making them swim butterfly repeats at halftime. Didn't even, I didn't even give them a talk or how to, you know, what strategy to change. Literally, it was jump in the water and do these butterfly repeats. And the crowd was like kind of laughing at them a little bit. Like, ah, they're, you know, they're, they're getting it from the coach there. They didn't even get a talk. They just have to jump in the water and swim these repeats. And it was kind of funny. And, but to be honest, this is the interesting thing. And again, this is just a single example. You know, I don't have multiple examples to draw from. I'm sure for every example like this, you probably have another one that might say the other thing, but that team, that Long Beach team came back and they didn't win, but they played a lot better. I mean, a lot better. Everything changed at halftime for them. And I'll just say this is, you know, the man, Tony Robbins said this was, uh, his phrase was, if you're in your head, you're dead. And what he meant by that was, if you're running mental programs that are keeping you out of the present moment, keeping you from the thing you really need to do, you need to get in your body. And I think for Tony, the solution he had given was he just go and like jump in the cold plunge or something. I think he had at his house like a little like in-ground like thing you could jump in and to get you out of the programs in your head. And I do think that that intense exercise that you could view it as punishment, but I think that intense exercise can offer you an opportunity to get you out of your head in that manner. And, and hence the team was playing much better after they did that they didn't need to be talked to they needed to get out of their head whatever program was stopping them apparently butterfly repeats were uh, what was helpful for that case and I, I think though that there's a balance to everything so this is just again with my limited experience and just kind of spitting some thoughts out there but doing um like for here's an, an example where i don't think it would be a good use of that at all would be, all right, the team lost the game, you're a basketball team, you lost the game, and next practice, the coach as punishment says, all right, we're just going to start practice with all these sprints because you're being punished for losing or something. And I I don't, that's where I would think there's, you've lost the flow state, the context, and now it's just because you're mad you lost. Like that would be more where I would go with that. So I just think it's a balance uh, with that. And that all being said too, I think, answering this question it's easy to in light of the in in light of the fact that many teams are over conditioned there's too much running not enough sport specific high velocity work is also very easy and it can be convenient to just lump in any extra conditioning done as you know hey you need to get your mind right let's you know on the line run these sprints i do think snapping people out of mental states and using that to do that can be helpful and then i also think too it's also very important the the mannerisms the relationship of the coach with the athlete 
a coach can be very tough and the athletes can love them. I think we saw that with, you know, think what you want, I guess, about, I don't want to get too far down these rabbit holes, but like Pat Summit with basketball, Bobby Knight, like super tough coaches, but the, the players who made it through absolutely love them. And there is something about that. So anyways, don't want to get, I'm sure someone could debate me on those things, but to me, they're very interesting observations and the good coaches that I had throughout, especially like my team sport experience, basketball, they would, they would rip me. I'd get on the line. The team would get on the line for messing up. But at the end of the day, you knew they, they wanted the best for you. They absolutely wanted the best for you. And there's something that's about that. So it's all balanced. And I think it's important to look at things in context with that. All right. So I'm just going to get to one more question here. And that is Ryan Banta. And Ryan asks, what is the biggest thing you have learned in the last two years that's helped your coaching? So this is a huge question. And thanks for asking it, Ryan. I had to write a few things down and, and gather a few thoughts together. And I'll just say that I think directly the biggest thing, there's, there's a lot of like kind of slow burning questions that I keep gradually getting answers for as I move through this. But the thing that I've been building up and improving over the years, and I, in my last few years at Cal, so 2019, 2020, this was really starting to come on. And then it's just gotten better and better from 2020, 2021, and 2022 is linking up the hardware with the software. So Dan Victor, a long time ago, I think on this podcast, had said that the strength dictates the function. So basically, I'm only going to exhibit uh, the technique that my physiology offers me, my strength offers me. You can't just pull an average person off the street and expect them to sprint with world-class sprint mechanics. Although I, I could actually take a person off the street and probably get them into that figure four sprint position. I found that's not actually that hard to do, but that's not, to me, that's not the defining features of elite sprint mechanics. So I just had to throw that jab in there. Anyways, it is pinning the hardware with the software. And so what I mean by that, people like people like Bill Hartman, Alex Effer, Katie St. Clair, David Gray, Pat Davidson, and many others, Kyle Dobbs, and on that level of biomechanics and what an athlete's uh, structure is is going to play an impact on their function and what you see. And so, for example, if I watch an athlete jump and they can't jump off two legs very well, and, and I've, I've seen this initially, like if this was four years ago, I'd have this athlete who's trying to jump higher and they're trying to jump higher off two legs. And five years ago, I might have said, well, hey, you need to really work on getting like, you need to rotate more and this leg needs to internally rotate more and let's work on that motion. And yeah, that, that can be helpful if you set it up right with the right constraint. But what I'm realizing now is, for example, that athlete who can't jump well off two feet, they aren't reciprocal at the hips. They have a horrible internal rotation bandwidth in that leg that is that final step leg. They just can't get into a good position at all when they're jumping off two feet because of their alignment and their structure. And so once you see the structure showing up in the skill, then it can give you a much better roadmap on where to go. And so you can do this with pretty much any athletic skill. And I will say too, there is a balance point here. So I don't believe that we should get totally buried in if an athlete isn't exhibiting certain things that doesn't allow them to hit the right or ideal positions and bandwidths they need to be in for their jumping, sprinting, throwing, whatever. You don't want to live in all the correctives. That is eventually going to be very regressive. And I always think about I need to stimulate an athlete more than they've ever been stimulated to help their organism reach a higher level. I've heard Tommy John say that, and I think that's a really important thing to always have in mind. But at the same time, 
you can think of it as an ends to middle. On one end, I need to have something that's very stimulating, social, emotional, high intensity type movements. But then on the other end, I also need to be thinking, well, how can I improve this athlete's alignment to help them? Maybe they're not going to get into this perfect position I'm looking for, but help them a little bit just to get a little bit better to give their body the bandwidth, the structure, the basic alignment to get to these things. And so an example I have in how that's gotten really come full circle for me and continued to get better. I've taken Alex Zephyr's mentorship. I've taken uh, an online course with Katie St. Clair and obviously had the opportunity to talk to so many of these people through the course of this podcast. And so I had, for example, an athlete who is a high school sprinter came to me, uh, trained up with online at the beginning of the summer, so June. And this athlete ran 11.9 as a sophomore. In assessing this athlete, I noticed that this athlete's lying straight leg raise test, so true straight leg raise test where you're watching for cheating and seeing when they're, they're, they're cheating to get the leg higher, uh, was not very good. So this athlete's true hip extension wasn't great. And when I watched the corresponding videos of this athlete sprinting, I also noticed I could see that lack of a straight leg raise test showing up in the sprint. So a lot of what we did through the summer, and the summer is a great time to work on weaknesses. Not so much competitive, the middle of competitive season, not a great time to work on weaknesses. <laughs> That's where you really want to play to your strengths. So we did use the summer as a time to work on some means to help improve that hip extension. So for example, things that I've gotten from Alex Effer, like a cross-connect uh, supine bridge, or you could even talk about like spinal rolls, like there was the spinal, um, the Jefferson curl question. So basic things to improve hip extension from a remedial level. So we did a lot of that type of work. And then on the other end, we did utilize basic strengthening exercises, some running constraints that I'm a fan of that I have in like my courses, like things like squatted running, of course, and utilize those. And yes, a little bit of sprint work, but it is the summer. And I know you're going to be sprinting a lot of the rest of the year. And then he gets to high school uh, the next uh, year and he's training in fall with his track team. And I get a message from his coach saying that he was running 11.9 the last year. And now he's beating people who ran 11.1 last year. So a monumental improvement for this guy. I'm not saying everybody's going to improve that much, but I do think that it worked really well. And I think that hitting that or attacking that problem from, yes, we're going to do some running and run constraints, but we're also going to approach the hardware. We're going to look at the biomechanics. We're going to look at the things structurally holding you back, and we're going to use the summer as that time to get to it. That's really powerful. And so for me, so much of it has been understanding more of it from that structural perspective. Katie St. Clair said something to me that I think was awesome is I showed her the video of Bob Hayes running crazy asymmetrically in the 1960s, running you know 10.00 or 9.99 or whatever. And she was talking about how he was able to use his chest wall in a certain way that fit with his asymmetry. And she talked about looking at athletes, almost if you look at it as a spine in space running, <laughs> like almost like cutting off the head and legs in space and just watching the torso move and watching and understanding that as a hardware-based element as well and how I can approach training with that. To me, that's really powerful. So learning to understand both ends of that has been very, very helpful for me. Of course, there's been so many other things too, uh, especially like just the, the Jared Burton was just on talking about this, the way we perceive training, the being able to tolerate high volumes and of work higher volumes than we would think. I've been exploring that as well in tandem for a while and just really getting into that. That, that fits into the, the long ISOs and the, a lot of the Jay Schrader and the pipes philosophies as well. So I'm always trying to explore that as well as do that in my own training. But 
I would definitely have to say the single thing that has been the biggest change for me and how I approach athletes is really looking at things from both the software and the hardware perspective. And just, again, you'd never want to get so carried away with the, the alignments and the corrective and the hardware that you take away from that heart of training. But if an athlete's low hanging fruit is something on that alignment level, you can do a lot of good there by having a basic knowledge of those things. So I'll definitely say that that is a huge area for me that I've been able to break through with. And um, yeah, this has been a little bit of a longer podcast. I don't know exactly how long I typically go for these, but I think this one's been a few more minutes. Thank you so much for everyone who has asked questions. If I didn't get to yours, I'm sorry. Hopefully, maybe I can do another one of these where I get some missed questions. There was a lot of good ones out there. Appreciate all you guys. Thank you for listening to this show and we'll see you next week. So that's going to happen. But when knee collapse is happening and the shin angle change can actually be too fast when the foot stays heel down for too long. It stays as a class one lever for too long. So to me, that's, that's just the big one is looking at the timing of when the heel comes up off the ground and that's going to dictate uh, which direction I tend to go with my sprint intervention. Next question we have. 